Welcome to Mindfully Integrative Podcast with your host, Dr. Damaris G. Mindfully Integrative is a podcast discussing ways toward mindfully incorporating integrative health into our lives. This podcast will have informative resources, fun topics, interviews, and discussions relatable for today with a true mindful perspective in a mind-body holistic life approach. Hello. This is Dr. Damaris Maria Grossman, and thank you again for joining in on the Mindfully Integrative podcast. And I just wanted to let you know of our upcoming events and things. So if you want to know and reach out, our resources and our membership is opening soon. So check out mindfullyintegrative.com for more fun and more info. Thanks so much and talk with you soon. Hi, how are you? This is Dr. Damaris Maria Grossman, and this is the Mindfully Integrative Show. Today, we have an amazing mindful chat with Dr. Fleet Mall. He is the founder of the Heart Mind Institute. He is an author, award-winning author, and he has many things to discuss with you, and I can't wait for you guys to learn more. Thanks so much, Dr. Mall, for being on. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I really want you to, you know, obviously talk about your research, but also talk about your books and and things that you have been doing. I call the integrative health space, but really a holistic whole health approach. And and first, let's see how did you kind of get into this? You know, before you know you were in a researcher, what did you do that got you to really dive into this? Or your well, focus? yeah, I mean, um, I think growing up through school, I was always interested in the mind. And always uh, kind of a spiritual seeker, just in my nature. And uh, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family in the Midwest, and the kind of family joke, kind of a joke, kind of semi-serious. They thought I was going to be a priest, but I didn't go in that direction. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I actually became a Buddhist priest later on, but I didn't become a Catholic priest. Oh. Um, and uh, but you know, I, I came of age in the 1960s, and you know, uh, kind of angry young man with a big hole in my gut, trying to fill that with all kinds of experiences, and you know, came out of an alcoholic family, and so I just went headlong into the counterculture and all the craziness of the time, and uh, so you know, I had kind of a, a a very mixed life for a long time, uh, where I was always a spiritual seeker, but I got involved in all the drug, sex, and rock and roll, and all the craziness of that era, the anti-war politics, and all that, and. And uh, um, ended up uh, as living in as a expat, kind of just was fed up with living in the country. I, I was very caught up in this kind of very polarized us versus them thinking, and mm-hmm. and ended up uh, you know traveling internationally, living uh, in South America, and uh, as an expat and fell into small time drug smuggling as a way to live outside the system, and justified that with all this us versus them thinking, and at the same time. I was continuing to be a spiritual seeker and uh and um yeah that eventually led me to get a master's degree at Naropa University where I did a 3-year clinical training program uh in Buddhist and Western psychology and psychotherapy and uh, uh but before I could untangle all that mess I earned my way into a, a 14-year federal prison sentence. Uh, in fact at one God, point I was How do I not have that? Was this in your bio? It should be. Yeah. Oh, goodness. I apologize. I didn't. Well, this is your story. Yeah. 14 yeah. years. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I was actually uh, uh, at one point I was in a an isolation cell on suicide watch. I wasn't suicidal, but they just I guess it was the night before my sentencing mm-hmm. and I was facing sentencing the next 
day and I could have been sentenced. I was facing a no parole sentence. This was back when they used to have parole in the federal system. They got rid of that in 1987, but I was sentenced in 1985. And uh, I was facing a no parole sentence uh, of anywhere from 10 years to life. And if I'd gotten a life sentence, I'd still be in prison today unless I got a presidential pardon and that's just not happening, right? So um, I, that's what I was years. facing. I ended up getting 30 30 years and I, I pretty much thought my life was over. I was 35 at the time. Paper the next day said I'd be 65 before I have any chance of release. Once I was in prison for a number of months after going through this hellhole of a county jail experience during trial and sentencing for seven months and then getting sentenced and then going to a federal prison, uh, after getting there, uh, you know, it took a while, but I kind of figured out how the, the the system worked. And fortunately, under what they call the old law prior to 1987, when they went from parolable sentencing to determinate sentencing. Uh, so prior to that, you earned a lot of good time if you stayed out of trouble. So I figured out that if I stayed out of trouble on that 30 year no parole sentence, I would uh, be able to be released at about 18 and a half years. Uh, but not before that. Whereas if it had been a parolable uh, sentence, you come up, you go to the parole board starting after you've served one third, right? Uh, that means they're going to let you out, but they could. Uh, but I would say I would have had to serve at least 18 and a half on that 30. And I could easily serve a lot more because it's really easy to get in trouble in prison. And then they start taking away chunks of that good time. Um, then it took my, uh, you know, I appealed my case, uh, I, I didn't feel I was guilty of one charge, which carried the no parole sentence. I would have gladly, gladly pled guilty to being involved in the smuggling I was involved in and put myself at the mercy of the court for sentencing. But but there's no parole sentence. I didn't really feel I was guilty of it. And so that's why I went to trial. Um, anyway, I appealed that conviction. And on appeal, they ended up dropping off one count. I had an aggregate sentence that amounted to 30, made up of different pieces, five different counts. So they knocked off one that reduced it to 25. And then, you know, and that took about three years. So at that point, then I knew if I stayed out of trouble, I'd serve 14, 14 and a half, but possibly half would be served outside, which I did. I served the half outside, half and a halfway house and half of it in a um, under house arrest. So so but I, I was in was federal prison for 14 years yeah, from 1985 to 1999. Mm -hmm. you, you make it sound like it's nothing. Well, no, it was hardly <laughs> nothing. It was hardly, it's yeah. been a long time. I yeah, I remember when I'd been out for 14 years, I'd been out or even 15 when I'd been out longer than I was in. And time has gone by a lot quicker since I've been out than it did when I was in, to say the very least. But I've been out now for, uh, you know, going on 23 years. So it's a long right. time ago. But it, I mean, obviously seminal experience in my life. And, and it really influences a lot of the work I do today. I mean, my big part of my life is still uh being in a a, a very um active role with the nonprofit i started when i was in prison uh, some 33 years ago called prison dharma network it's also known as prison mindfulness institute and has other divisions called engage mindfulness institute and center for mindfulness and public safety and we bring mindfulness to incarcerated to at-risk incarcerated and returning adult and youth citizens we we're, now we're bringing mindfulness to to the correctional officers, probation parole officers, police, judges, public defenders, prosecutors, other first responders. And so that's a big part of my life uh, still to work through the nonprofit. And so uh, so it was a seminal experience for me. And also because when I when I got locked up, I've been doing deep work for a long time. I'd already been trained as a Buddhist teacher and I'd gotten a master's degree, a clinical training uh, as a psychotherapist. 
And so that begs the question, well, why did I still end up in prison? Well, suffice it to say, you know, I was doing a lot of compartmentalization and I had a lot of shadow stuff going and I hadn't resolved all the, you know, all the tangles of, of what I went through with, with my childhood and the counterculture and all, all the rest of it. And I knew it had, I knew it all that the crazy and it had to stop, but, you know, and, you know, I, I, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance around getting very deeply involved in a Buddhist path and being trained as a Buddhist teacher and still having that shadow life going on. Um, but, you know, and when I was, I spent a lot of my time in retreats where I was just deep in practice. Um, but when I was outside of that, you know, the cognitive distance was there. I was self-medicating around it with alcohol and drugs. So mm-hmm. I just kind of crazy split life. And uh, I knew it had to end. But before I managed to untangle it on my own, actually, I did kind of begin to untangle it. But others who I'd been involved with uh, uh, had uh, continued. I stopped. They continued. And when they got uh, in trouble uh, with the law, they decided to invite me to the party. And so uh, so I ended up being indicted. Uh, but at any rate, uh, you know, I came in with a lot of training um, and it was a, it's still a horrific experience on so many levels. I can only imagine. Um, um, no worries. And at the same time, uh, it was like my monastery time or my ashram time because, you know, when I got locked up, I knew the jig was up and I really had to, you know, focus on cleaning up my life and 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 taking advantage of all the good I'd received in my life, even from my family of origin and all the training I'd received, my spiritual teacher and my my uh, my clinical training and my training as a Buddhist practitioner, as a teacher. And and when I got locked up, my son was nine years old at the time. And I was absolutely devastated over what I'd done to him because I finally had to face it. You know, all those years I thought I actually thought of myself as a good father. I love my son. I'm a good father. And I was a horrific. I, you know, I was putting him at risk constantly by being involved in that mm-hmm. and and ended up he ended up having to grow up a good part of his life without a dad. So I was devastated by that. I hit that wall and, and went through a real dark night of the soul. And I became absolutely dedicated, committed uh, to extricating all the negativity out of my life and really focusing on. You know, I, I had no surety that I would survive that prison time at all. I mean, initially, I thought I was going to be there for 30 years. And um, but even after I knew it would be less than that, I still had no surety that I would survive my time, even up until near the end, because people were dying there. I mean, I did my time in a federal maximum security federal prison hospital where people did die of violence, but mostly they were dying because the patients who were there uh, for treatment, for medical treatment, they were dying of, of cancer and AIDS and liver disease. And 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 I saw healthy prisoners who were in the general population, like myself, I was part of what they call the work cadre or general population, were there to help run the place, you know, working in housekeeping or food service or up in the hospital as an orderly or in, you know, in the welding shop, whatever. I ended up teaching school for 14 years because I had an education. So my nine to five job Monday through Friday for 14 years was helping other prisoners learn to read or uh, earn their GED or study for correspondent college courses. Uh, also taught English, ESL classes, things like that. That was my day job. Um, so uh, I just became uh, radically dedicated to leave a better legacy for my son than just, you know, his dad went to prison or even his dad died in prison. Mm-hmm. I was just really trying, how can I show up here and serve? And I'd received so much from my teachers and um you know, and here I was thrown into this kind of hell realm where there was so much suffering. I mean, I'll never forget the oh. first day I arrived at that federal prison after being in this really hell hole of a county jail, just complete chaos for seven months where I could barely sleep, but I was still practicing meditation intensively um, and living with the nightmares of what prison was going to be like. And I'd seen too many prison movies and hearing all the 
war stories from my fellow prisoners in a county jail, you know, having nightmares of being raped and things like that. You know, there's a lot. I got to the federal prison and on the one hand, it was a big relief because it was a huge place. You could walk around. There was a yard you could go out and walk on. There was a, a workout, you know, area. Uh, there were 10 buildings all connected by these um, half below ground, half above ground tunnels. So they had like windows with light, but you didn't ever have to go outside. If you didn't want to, you could connect all the different buildings. Um, and so it was a relief to be in out of that county jail and into this place. Um, but I remember the first day walking the halls and I'm seeing men coming out of this psychiatric ward, the ones who were able to leave the ward and get out in the yard and so forth, you know, kind of doing the Thorazine two-step or, or out on, out in the yard talking to themselves, or I was seeing men being guided around who are blind in prison and somebody's helping them around. I'm seeing people being wheeled around in wheelchairs who are paraplegic and quadriplegic or emaciated, dying of cancer and AIDS. And it was literally the first day I was there, I thought I was in some kind of Fellini movie of, of suffering, right? And it just was such a shock. But in some ways that was really good because when I arrived there, of course, I was caught up in the drama of my own situation. I'd just been sentenced to 30 years. My life was over, right? I was very much caught up in my personal drama. And then I get to this place and I'm confronted with this incredible amount of human suffering. It just woke me up out of my own self-preoccupation and and all the, you know, what I'd received from my spiritual teachers, who's, you know, as an example, especially my primary spiritual teacher, Trung Rinpoche, a Tibetan master, whose life 24-7 was all about serving humanity. So, you know, that just kicked in and, and I became focused on how do I show up here and how do I serve here? And how to also really focus on my own personal transformation and my own practice. I've, you know, I became incredibly dedicated uh, to my own practice and my own education um, and my own transformation, as well as serving in that environment. So it ended up being a very transformational experience for me, although, you know, it was still, I mean, on a good day, you only had maybe a half dozen really demeaning experiences, either with your fellow prisoners or the or the correctional officers, you know, things just assaults on your your humanity. And, you know, so, I mean, it was a very corrosive environment to live in. But, you know, through using internal spiritual practices and really focusing on my own health and well-being and my mindset and doing deep meditation practices, I actually learned to live in that very corrosive environment in a very positive way and and not have not be not be overly traumatized um, by being in that environment. I I can I knew there was history, but I didn't realize it was 14 years. Um, I and the, the way that you talk about suffering. Think about, you know, the, when I, from my teachings and from my, you know, general experience and, and I think suffering, you, you have it to the utmost and to come out on the other end of this story, you know, and saying you wanted to change and make other people's lives better and that you're teaching during that your sentence. And I mean, you got half sentenced. I mean, there has to be reason why all the work that you were doing in the prison you know, not only did your appeal, but I mean, I I do believe that you were not supposed to be in there 30 years. Like your your work, it, it meant something. And now your work now means something. Um, do you find it harder now or do you find it harder then? Find what harder? Life? Um, yeah, your life. I mean, or I mean, this like the, the word suffering as you used back then must have been, you know, now the word suffering for you is 
it, it, if you could get through that, I feel like anything is, is, is possible. Well, you know, I sometimes I do, you know, I do a lot of teaching and training with people. I mean, before the pandemic, I was a road warrior on the road every week, all over the world, teaching all kinds of mindfulness-based programming and emotional intelligence training. And for the general public, leadership stuff, corporate stuff, prison programs, all kinds of things, doing a lot of peace work and uh, bearing witness work in Africa and, and former concentration camps in Europe and so forth. Um, of course, you know, when the pandemic hit, like everybody else, I've been home and doing everything online, right? Right, right, um, right. But, uh, you know, I often share with people um, that, you know, and I've, I've shared this with, with prisoners uh, uh, very, very frequently. Um, you know, it's really important to do all this inner work so that, you know, you can get to a place of being okay, healing our own trauma, uh, you know, developing greater well-being and resilience so we can live our lives from a place of well-being and resilience rather from a, a really traumatized place uh, to do the work to really get in the driver's seat of our own life rather than living in just this kind of mechanical reactive state uh, in the interface of our childhood conditioning that we had nothing to say about. And then the circumstances that surround us as, you know, as adults, right? Uh, and most of us kind of live, we may think we're, you know, free thinking adults, you know, autonomous adults making free thinking decisions all day long, but mostly we're, we're very habitual and we're mostly just living in this mechanical reactive state in this interface between the world around us and, and our childhood conditioning. It actually takes strong intention and practice and mind training to become conscious and become aware and be able to actually live consciously and live in a wakeful way and really direct your own life and your own destiny. And I said, but even when you do all that work, um, that doesn't mean suffering is you're not going to continue to suffer. You know, in fact, you know, in some ways, you know, the more prepared we become to take on life's challenges, it seems in some way life gives us even greater challenges. Mm. Um, and uh, and we get called into serving. Uh, and uh, but, you know, since I've been out or even, you know, before I got out, um, along with the process of incarceration. I lost my first uh, and core spiritual teacher, Chogun Trumpermache, early on in my prison years. I went to prison in 1985. He died in 1987. That was very devastating. And then, you know, my I was very hopeful, and one, especially once I knew that I was going to have to serve 14 if I stayed out of trouble. And, and I did manage to, although it was, you know, a lot of it was by hook or crook. I mean, I had always had strong intentionality. I wasn't looking for trouble, but it's easy to, you know, it's easy for trouble to find you even when you're not looking for it when you're in prison. Um, uh, so it's kind of like a powder keg, you know, and I lived on a unit designed for 50 people and it had usually about 185 men and no air conditioning. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it was, there was some kind of, you know, conflict waiting around every corner if you weren't really mm -hmm. mindful and awake and, and so forth. So, um, um, wow. uh, I, I lost my train of thought oh, there for a moment, but with, with, um, um, maybe I, I can backtrack from him to, no, um, your year I was talking about, you were talking about suffering and then at that time. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, Right around the time of getting out, uh, yeah, I was very hopeful that I would. Once I knew I was only going to serve four, only going to serve fourteen, uh, <laughs> I was very hopeful that I would get out. My parents would get to see me out and you know doing okay, right? And that was a very strong hope of mine. And as long as the deep longing to you know to be able to uh, be present in my son's life again, and um, my dad ended up dying five months before I got out, and my mom ended up dying five months after I got out. 
Mm. And uh, so um, uh, that was devastating, obviously. Uh, the woman who had been my kind of off and on girlfriend before I went to, uh, I separated from my son's mother many, many years earlier, long before I went to prison. Uh, but a woman who had been my kind of on and off and again girlfriend before I went to prison. I wasn't a very good boyfriend in that area. Uh, but nonetheless, we we remained good friends. She was smart enough to go on with her life, and I wanted her to go on with her life. But we 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 became really good friends and stayed in touch. She would come to visit me every couple of years. We stayed in touch by correspondence. And and uh, when I got out, we were actually considering whether to try to get back together. She was living in Canada. She had moved to Canada, become had a landed immigrant there. Her daughter was there. She had a great job there. I couldn't leave Colorado, where I returned to out of prison. So, you know, we're trying to figure that out. And uh, just a year after I got out, she died of cancer. Oh. Mm. Um, and then uh, the next two relationships that I got into, um, um, both, I mean, with, I've been blessed to meet some and, you know, be, have some amazing, amazing women be part of my life. Uh, but one relationship I was in that had to end because that person was having a lot, a lot of struggles and it was putting me at risk because I was still on probation and parole and, and beautiful person, but struggling a lot of trauma, I think. And anyway, they, they ended up committing suicide about six months after I, after our relationship ended. So I wasn't a direct result of us breaking up. She was already in another relationship, but it was still absolutely devastating. And then then I found my way into another incredible relationship with my partner, Denise, who, uh, you know, was just and she was we we're both, uh, you know, deep practitioners in our in the same tradition. And we're very just an amazing human being. And, uh, you know, we were together about five years and then she got cancer and died. Mm. So, um, you know, you never know what's going to pull. I feel very blessed. Today. I didn't know if I'd ever be in a relationship again. I am. I'm married. And I'm to Sophie, an amazing, amazing woman, and I'm the love of my life. And I'm so happy Aww. to share my life with her. So, you know, that's wonderful. But life is very uncertain, and everything's, you know, we, we're constantly trying to, you know, solidify ourselves and solidify life and get it. You know, okay, now I got it. It's going to stay this way, but it, it that's not like that. Life is you know, completely groundless and impermanent. And uh, so, you know, but fortunately, the mind training available in the mindfulness movement and in the deep contemplative traditions underlying that or where that was sourced from um, provide practices where we can transform our our mind, our way of our way of being and our consciousness such that we're able to actually make peace with that impermanence and that groundlessness and actually thrive in it. And find energy and joy in it, right? Uh, which is really the amazing. You make me cry. I, said, I love what life. you're saying. <laughs> I said you're making me cry because I'm thinking about how right you are, and I and and your thoughts and your words are just so proud, just so profound. Um, I think about you know um, how I lo- mindfulness for me has changed my my whole life, you know, and I think my struggles were hard. Your story is hundred times harder than mine, you know? Um, well, it's but, all relative, you know, it's right? all, all you know, suffering when we're there. It's I, painful. <laughs> no, but the, the strength that you're describing that we have available to us within um, is there that um, people need to know that it's a, that the practice is 
part it's of absolutely there you. each one of us has an unconditional inherent reservoir of strength and courage and compassion and my tibetan teacher called it basic goodness and when we get beneath all the noise and you know all the conditioning and all noise through using contemplative means to get into the depth of our being Right. We can have that experience of realizing that, no, I'm not broken and I don't need fixing. I'm completely complete and whole and and I am innately good and uh, and I'm connected to the world and life is good. And I'm good. You know, we it's not just a thought. We have that experience through these practices and that changes everything. We still got to deal with all the challenges of life. And right. uh, but it, it really shifts everything because we're not living from those lives. All of us were told in one way or another growing up that we're not enough or we're broken or we need fixing or you know, what have you. I mean, Dr. Mall, I, I feel like your words are there, your legacy. I know that you had said, you know, you wanted something more than, you know, just to get out of prison, right. Or, you know, and gets through your showing and making legacy and change because you you're making impact in so many people's lives, even past all of your struggles. And, and each, each of these stories that you're saying are not just one-off things like prison is one, a death of loved one, but a death of a few loved ones. And then your the relationship with your family, like all of those aspects, one person sometimes can't even handle one of those. Um, and I, I hope that someone listening or um, how can understand that we can get through these parts and these things. And, and it's a work in progress, but obviously you've been doing the work for years. And um, I, I just, I find you an amazing man. I, 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 I'm crying, right? I'm thinking about it and I'm starting to get a little, te- I'm really, I'm very emotional thinking about how much work you've done on your, on your own self and how much now you can guide other people. And I think that, that, you know, that must've taken so much of you, you know what I mean? Yourself to go and then to be, to be on a teacher. Cause I feel like you're not even a teacher. You're, you're almost like ascended here. <laughs> yeah. And on some level, um, uh... In my life, it feels choiceless uh, on, on many, many levels. Um, and I realize all kinds, you know, people make all kinds of choices, but, uh, and I certainly have made some, some, uh, some unfortunate choices in the past and made some much, much better choices uh, more recently in my life. But in some ways, the direction of my life does, I mean, it, it may sound heroic to people, but it doesn't really feel heroic to me. It feels more choiceless. And I've been given so much by, by by so many uh by so many people and really my understanding of life today is that it is about you know training i'm training to be a human being and i'll be doing that training until i die and in some sense training to die you know always how how can we keep emerging as the best version of ourselves not that there's anything wrong with the current version but it, we're like any life form we're designed to grow and thrive and evolve right we're not designed to be static right so you know and that really is an important distinction there because Sometimes when when people think about making changes in their life and, you know, the whole kind of idea of self-improvement can come from a place of lack, like I'm not okay the way I am, but if I do all these things, I'll improve and then I'll be okay and I'll be lovable and acceptable and I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that that's not very helpful. But if we can if we can get in touch through contemplative practices with that core of basic goodness, that innate unconditional goodness at the core of our being, then we can we can work on evolving and training ourselves and you know uh um from a different place right not from a sense of lack or not enoughness but just because it's natural to grow and thrive and that's what we're here for 
And so, you know, I don't, I never feel like I'm training to get to some point and then I'll be ready to live my life. Mm -hmm. And I just think of life, that's what life is. Like every moment is an opportunity to keep growing and, and, uh, and opening and become more loving and more compassionate, more awake and, and uh, less driven by, you know, unconscious shadow stuff. And um, yeah, and that just seems to me about what life is, uh, the journey is about. And it makes life an incredibly uh, uh, exciting journey, really. Do you feel like there you are without, is there, is your life without anything at this point? I mean, relationship wise or like everything that you've been through, do you feel like you are without something like you're missing anything at this point? No, no, I don't, I don't, I feel a real sense of, uh, fullness and, uh, and, and richness, uh, uh, to my life. Um, you know, through mindfulness practice and, uh, and then going, you know, deeper into some of the contemplative traditions, um, ultimately we can have experiences kind of blow all the noise and, you know, into some realms that sometimes people describe as non-self or, or something beyond the self or, uh, or, uh, um, you know, experiences of some kind of core of, of a witness that's not the small self at all, or, or experience, you know, what sometimes people call ego dissolution through various experiences, or it can really just be our sense of self expands so much that it's no longer about me. It's like, you know, being connected with the whole world and, and your locus of decision-making, your orientation, what's important to you and how you make decisions is now not just about you and not about myself, but it's about the whole world. You know, the idea of kind of the ecological self, right? Where, mm-hmm. So you you can think of it easier as a kind of dissolution and just de- um, uh, deconstruction of the small self, or you can think of it as an expansion to where it, you know, the idea of a individuated self doesn't really seem that relevant anymore. And of course, we still, as long as we're alive, we still live in a body and need to orient. But, but we can, but we can, you know, have those um, experiences, and and they connect us uh, more profoundly uh, to our life, right? And um, and it's like, you know, everything. I mean, it's just like the you go outside, uh, the the colors, the greenery, the flowers. It's all brighter. It's more vivid. I mean, life just shows up in a really powerful magical way the less caught up we are in maintaining that that small self you know am i am i okay do people love me am i going to be okay am i going to get what i want you know what's going on with me what do people think about me that you know that crazy conversation that goes on between our ears but today from neuroscience we know is connected to the an overactive default mode network and we know that mind training uh helps to make a shift from there to at least in simple neurobiological terms to the to the uh, task positive network, and they're they're kind of mutually inhibitory. So the more we become focused, then that noisy part of the brain quiets down a bit, and we're able to stabilize attention, and then go into deeper and deeper levels of awareness, and and become more embodied and more connected. So uh, you know, it's just it's just a never ending adventure, you know. Like, um, and from that perspective, life is you know still has suffering and still painful. We still experience loss, uh, all, you know, all the things that are going on in the world today that are so upsetting, you know, with still with climate change and species destruction and wars and, you know, and refugee crises and violence, you know, it's all just heartbreaking. And at the same time, we we can still live life from a place of uh, of the great adventure of becoming more awake, more conscious, more loving. 
Oh my gosh. I, I, I'd like you to leave with that, but I, I, I was going to say what, <laughs> I mean, you're, you have so much to say. It's beautiful. Um, I was actually going to ask in the realm of your helping your inmates with the mindfulness, I remember doing just small, I've, I've worked in, um, in uh, doing a couple classes in mindfulness for, um, inmates and, and women and some veterans with a nonprofit local to me. And I'm, I'm thinking about the work that you do with that. That has probably been so profound. Um, and just so helpful for them to, because you were able to get past your suffering, but also learned through your teachings and then to bring that teachings to others, you know, just basic mindfulness, just, it's not even basic. The word basic isn't the right word, but, um, have you, did you find that to be, um, because you, this is a nonprofit that you also have, is that the Heart Mind Institute or is that? No, the Heart Mind Institute is actually a for-profit company. That's what I do all my online seminars and I'm a oh, big great. part of my life today. I have kind of these two parts of my life. I have a little nonprofit work, which is the whole okay. prison work, criminal justice, public safety work. And yeah. then I have the for-profit part of my life where I, I do consulting and I'm a seminar leader in training and and mostly what we're doing there is online courses. I have a lot of online courses. That's at heartmind.co. And I do a lot of online summits. Um, um, you know, we, we do these big summits that are free. So we're reaching tens of thousands of people. And we cover the cost by offering the, you know, people can have lifetime access to the recordings of the videos and so forth. So it works out. And But we're able to do these amazing events. Uh, we're doing about six a year now. And, and our biggest one so far, I think, reached 65,000 people and the smaller ones reached 30,000. And and we have one coming up um, in October that I'm very uh, involved with right now on uh, this emerging field of psychedelic assisted therapy, which oh, is offered so okay. much promise I'll to so to many me. people. Right. Uh, the potential for healing is just um, amazing. Right. So it's a really rich part of my life where I get to interview all these amazing people and and uh, so that's a very rich part of my life, but also still being involved very much in the prison work. I mean, I actually spend I still go into prisons and, you know, the prisons were all shut down to outside volunteers and contractors during the pandemic. They're just starting to open up again. But I will go back into prisoners uh, into prisons and I will work with our uh, fellow incarcerated citizens. Um, but a lot of my work today is actually uh, working with correctional officers, probation and parole officers. I, I literally spend a lot of time in person and online training them in a model we have called mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency because uh you know that's a highly traumatized population because they're continually faced with with poor insufficiently managed chronic stress uh both uh primary and secondary trauma exposure and and you know the actually there's research showing that the average life expectancy for a correctional officer who works in secure facilities for more than 20 years is like 58 years two decades mm. less than the general population and are dying of all the chronic stress related ailments as well as suicidality. And, and so there's a lot, a lot of trauma in, in that world. And, and we have our correctional facilities where you have the, the prisoners and uh, the incarcerated folks and you have the, the, the staff and they're just continually re-traumatizing each other. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, um so it's, it's like you know, a teaching you know you have if they're going to be there it, you're teaching these correctional officers to to have more compassion for these inmates yeah well we don't really teach, you know? we don't right we right? don't teach that to them um, no not compassion we just well I, I would love to but but you know it wouldn't be well received but 
Um, but no, we're teaching them how to take good care of themselves and how to develop self-compassion because we know if they become mindfulness practitioners and have more compassion for themselves, they're yeah. inevitably going to become more compassionate with other human beings. Right? I think um, in turn, that's where I was coming from. I say compassion, but yes, yeah, you're, you're yeah. right. You're teaching them the, their inner work. But it's important for people to realize that everybody who ends up in prison, and there are some people in prison that have done absolutely horrific, heinous things. But the vast majority of people in prison have not done those really horrific, heinous things. But even the ones who have, they just acted out of their own suffering. I mean, only, you know, hurt people hurt people. And, you know, and the more heinous the things they did, I'll guarantee you, you'll find more heinous damage in their own childhood, really serious childhood abuse. But actually, the level, the amount of prison, if you looked at the whole prison population, the, the percentage who experience either physical, emotional, or sexual abuse as children is off the charts. I mean, it would probably be 70%, you mm-hmm. know? And and so people are kind of programmed by their, their, their childhood trauma and suffering to end up in our criminal justice system. So people need to realize that everybody that's in our criminal justice system, in our prisons and jails and on parole, and parole, that they're all just human beings like us and are suffering human beings, and are human beings who perhaps suffered even more than we have in their childhoods and be highly traumatized. And sure, they have to be held accountable, um, but but demonizing them and and you know thinking we can throw them away uh, not only doesn't work um, because they're all going to come back out. That ninety seven percent of prisoners will be released someday. Um, but, you know, they're human beings just like us. And when I go into prisons, I, I, I want them to get two things. I want them to get, and they do because it's who I am and, and how I genuinely feel and see the world. I want them to get that. I, that I realize that for the most part, you know, they've, they're, they've been victimized by their own lives. They've suffered tremendous trauma. Uh, the criminal justice system is very unjust. Uh, it, whether by intent or default, it ends up being very racist and it's sentencing disparities and so forth and prosecution disparities. And so, you know, I want them to get, I get that they are the victims of tremendous injustices from their childhood all the way through into the criminal justice system. I, I really want them to get that and that I find it heartbreaking to see my fellow human beings in that situation. The other thing that I want them to also get is the only person who can turn that around is them. That their future destiny is going to be determined by one and one only thing, the decisions they're making today and the decisions they're making tomorrow. And, you know, so sitting around and stewing around how badly you've been victimized, you know, is very reasonable, but it isn't going to take you anywhere. And I'm not saying people should deny. I think we need to have a lot of self-compassion and, and acknowledge the pain and, and, and the ways we've been victimized by things. But then we don't want to be stuck there and develop that mindset. We want to say, okay, I've had a real, I got dealt a really tough, you know, hand in this card game. I, I got really dealt some really tough circumstances. Okay, what am I going to do with that? You know, am I going to let that take me down? Or am I going to find some way to own that and focus on training myself to get out of prison and do some good in the world when I get out there? Uh, and if I want to change the system and overcome a lot of the injustice, well, I'm going to do that much more so as a trained, awake person uh, who has my own act together than as, you know, someone with a victim mindset who's just, you know, you know, still flailing around uh, as an expression of my trauma, right? We all, we have to do the work. And, you know, who knows why some of us in life experience heartbreakingly the disparities. I mean, all human beings suffer, right? It's, it's no small thing being a human being, but the disparities of the amount of suffering, and especially childhood trauma and so forth that people experience around where they're born, the color of their skin, 
you know, uh, their sexuality, their gender, all kinds of things. It's heartbreaking, those disparities. And, you know, we all get dealt what we got dealt. And and it's not. And I think I firmly believe we all need to aspire to really change that landscape. So, you know, fewer and fewer people are getting, you know, really that, you know, that really unfair level of injustice and trauma and all that. But in the meantime, for any particular individual, it's up to them to say, I'm not going to let this take me down. I'm going to find a way to use this as fuel for transformation and uh, and go forward in my life. And of course, there's countless examples of human beings who've been able to do that from the worst circumstances you could possibly imagine. And it may seem heroic, but you know, um, in some ways, life is the hero's journey, right? That That's what the human life is. You know, Joseph Campbell did such a great job of drawing from many different human traditions to kind of outline the core aspects of the, and the steps in, in the classic hero's journey, but we're all on a hero's journey. You know, that's what life is. I, I think your transformational words and the ripple effect and the thoughts that you are conveying are so important for those that one person may hear this conversation and think that their suffering is bad and, or that they can't get past whatever is going through for their, their bad day or their bad event. Um, and that there is hope beyond where they're at. I think it's so necessary. And I'm so glad for you being on it. I really appreciate your time and your wealth of knowledge and all of the, your your words. They're they're so deeply appreciated. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I'm really uh, happy to have the opportunity, humbled to have the opportunity to connect with your audience. And I hope uh, I may have shared whatever I've shared. I hope it can be of uh, benefit to someone. It, it it definitely is. And I, I think there's so much more to be said and, and a pause for you. I, I feel like you need a, I need like a, a big pause, but um, how can those reach you and how can they get a hold of you? Um, Dr. Mall. Sure. Well, the easiest place to begin is with my basic website, which is fleetmall.com, fleetmall.com. And from there you can get, find your way to a lot of the other things I do. Uh, but we mentioned HeartMind Institute, that's heartmind.co. And, uh, uh, people want to find out about my Radical Responsibility book. That's RadicalResponsibilityBook.com. And then if people are interested in the prison work that I do, PrisonMindfulness.org uh, uh, is uh, all the work that we do with incarcerated youth and adults. And then uh, we train mindfulness teachers through the Engage Mindfulness Institute. That's EngageMindfulness.org. Uh, and uh and the work we do at corrections and other professionals and other public safety professionals is uh, mindfulpublicsafety.org. So there's those oh three websites. So much. And, I, uh, oh, I, I'm going to have all of this in the show notes, but I, uh, you are, your work is expansive. I, I don't even think there's enough that I can say about what you're doing. And, and I can see you're giving like, it's like infinity, you know, it's, it's endless. Um, well, it keeps me out of trouble. I, whatever that is, is okay. And, and I, I think it's like quite profound how you've been able to see your, you know, your flaws and your stuff and then say, okay, how do we work through that? How do we get beyond? So thank you so much really for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Samaris. And, um, and I thank you guys for listening and for watching. And of course, as I say each day, make sure you have a mindful way. Thanks again and have a blessed day. Thanks for listening to Mindfully Integrative with Dr. Damaris G. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
If you enjoyed our show, support us by leaving a mindful review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite streaming site. If you would like to be a guest of our show or interview, email us at info at damarismaria.com. If you want to learn more about the resources mentioned in the podcast, you can find those in the show notes. To connect mindfully with Dr. Damaris G., reach her at www.damarismaria.com or connect via social media links. We appreciate your time connecting here with us. May your strength and peace within bring you more balance every day. Namaste.